broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thank you for checking out the Midtown Business Radio Show. I had the opportunity this week to sit down with Shannon Powell, the Chief Operating Officer of Midtown Alliance, and Ben Hirakawa of Blue Goblin. Since its creation in 1978, the Midtown Alliance has been a driving force behind the revitalization of Midtown Atlanta. They're a not-for-profit membership organization and a coalition of leading business and community leaders united in their commitment to Midtown as a premier destination for commerce, culture, education, and living. They're governed by a 71 member board of the district's top private sector leaders, the Midtown Alliance accomplishes their goal through a comprehensive approach to planning and development that includes initiatives to enhance public safety, improve the physical environment, and strengthen urban amenities which give the area its unique character. Here's Shannon talking about how she ended up with the Midtown Alliance and why it's so satisfying for her to be a part of it. I've always really loved cities and how they've developed. I went to school in Charleston, South Carolina, walked the streets and really was influenced by that quality of life. Went on to Georgia Tech to get a master's in city and regional planning. And today, working for the Midtown Alliance, which is a nonprofit that really focuses on building a vibrant community for Midtown Atlanta, I'm able to apply those skills and what's really great about what I do for the Midtown Alliance is that I not only plan, but I also get to execute. So many planners, when we're talking about city planning, you, you do the planning, but you hand it off. And those plans seldom or often don't come to fruition. And that's been the exception and kept me at the Midtown Alliance for uh, the last 15 years. So that's awesome. It's um, I, I look out the window and I see something new every single day. And it's pretty humbling to realize that you have an influence on how that's happening. Ben founded Blue Goblin in 2014, and this company is going to be an environmentally sound solution for the disposal of a variety of plastic foams, particularly those that you see used to insulate buildings and appliances and even things like refrigerated truck trailers, for example. They're developing a mobile platform that they can roll up to a demolition site and actually reclaim ceiling tiles, the foam sheets that they use to insulate the building on the outside of it and underneath the roofing. They're able to reclaim the foam that is used to insulate those large refrigerated tractor trailer trucks and other applications like that and actually remove some of the noxious gases that are bad for the ozone out of that and destroy that while at the same time compacting those foams down into a more economically transported form, saving the demolition company much money and also obviously returning those recyclable materials back into the manufacturing space so that they can be reused and repurposed. Here's Ben talking about why he's doing what he's doing with Blue Goblin. Check it out. The last business that I was involved in getting started up is called Reclaim. They're out in South Carolina, and what they are is an appliance recycling facility. It was a $40 million startup, and basically, like many other recyclers, they go and, and they shred appliances, whether that is washers and dryers, whether it's refrigerators, air conditioners, dishwashers, all types of appliances. And like everybody else, they go in and they recover the metals and the plastics, and they're able to reuse those. What differentiates them and what I think is a, a very neat thing about what they are doing is they have integrated an air purification system. So in a cooling device that has a coolant or insulation, they're able to separate and capture the liquid coolant and capture the blowing agent that's stuck in the closed pockets that are in the insulation of a refrigerator and destroy those on site. And both those coolants and blowing agents have a very negative effect on the environment. Prior to 1993, CFC 11 and 12 were very common and those have high ozone depleting potential and global warming effects. So by treating one refrigerator using their process, it's the equivalent of taking two cars off the road for a year. And that seems 
pretty significant to me. <laughs> so what I did is looked at other sources of foam that might also have these gases. And if you look at a refrigerated transport, like the truck that... Like that a semi. Yeah. Uh, exactly. That moves food to a grocery store. Whereas a refrigerator is going to have 20 pounds of foam in it, a refrigerated transport is going to have 700. So if doing one refrigerator is the same as taking two cars off, then it makes sense that a trailer would be significantly more. And in, in addition to refrigerated transport, it's very commonly used as insulation on buildings. If you're driving down the road and you see a building that is covered in blue board or pink board or green board, right. or the yellow material that's commonly used as uh, insulation. Before they put the outside on, you mean? Yeah, that's uh -huh. right. So, And the yellow material is under flat roofing. Those are all foam that have the blowing agent in it. So there are companies that are out there recycling roofing foam, and they're able to exist in profit just on that one service <laughs> with, with, without capturing the gases. But what they do is they just ask the roofing company or the demolition company to take these pieces of foam, put them on a pallet, put it on a truck, and transport. We're going to go to a demolition site. And the biggest ones that we've seen had 600,000 pounds of foam just on roofing. Now, it was a Boeing plant. Again, if they get 3,000 pounds or 1,000 pounds on a 40-foot trailer, that right. adds up to be quite a bit of cost. But in addition to reducing the disposal cost, we're going to recycle that material and capture the blowing agent that is being released as we compact the material and try and destroy it. So I think that it is a good thing to do economically, but also environmentally. We're hoping to be able to help the clients generate lead credits for properly disposing or recycling this material. In addition to building insulation and refrigerated transport insulation, there's also what everybody's familiar with is packaging material. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's every a, Christmas. Yeah, every Christmas. <laughs> and anytime you get electronics or appliances, furniture, they all generate a lot of packaging material. So again, we'll bring the trailer to them and compact it on site, save them a significant amount over what their normal disposal costs are and help do something green at the same time. Stick around. I got the full interview with Shannon Powell and Ben Hirakawa coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It's CW, your host here on the Midtown Business Radio Show. Thank you for making us a part of your day today. Real pleased to be bringing you the folks that we have in studio with us today. We have Shannon Powell, the COO of Midtown Alliance here in Midtown Atlanta. Thanks for taking some time. Thank you. And another real cool guy, we recently had a show where we talked about someone in the recycling space, and, and we've got another one here, just kind of, kind of by coincidence, actually, Ben Hirakawa of Blue Goblin. I'll be interested to see where you came up with the name as well but thanks for taking some time. Thank you very much for having me. I, I want to start with you, Shannon. Introduce us to yourself. What brought you here up to the place where you are now with Midtown Alliance? I've always really loved cities and how they've developed. I went to school in Charleston, South Carolina, walked the streets and really was influenced by that quality of life. Went on to Georgia Tech to get a master's in city and regional planning. And today, working for the Midtown Alliance, which is a nonprofit that really focuses on building a vibrant community for Midtown Atlanta, I'm able to apply those skills and what's really great about what I do for the Midtown Alliance is that I not only plan, but I also get to execute. And so many planners, when we're talking about city planning, you, you do the planning, but you hand it off. And those plans seldom or often don't come to fruition. And that's been the exception and kept me at the Midtown Alliance for uh, the last 15 years. So that's awesome. It's, um, I've, I look out the window and I see something new every single day, and it's pretty humbling to realize that you have an influence on how that's happening. Now, when we talk about the Midtown Alliance, what are we talking about? The Midtown Alliance is a nonprofit, so it's a nonprofit membership-based organization. It's a group of business and civic leaders that are truly working together to make Midtown a vibrant and urban place. We're effectively 
effectively a liaison between the private sector and the public sector. And so okay. we do many things that you would think of that a city would do. We simply augment what the city of Atlanta does as partners with them. So we work with the city of Atlanta to build out sidewalks, lights, trees. We work with the city and the Department of Transportation to retime signals to make traffic flow more easily. We have a public safety force that are off-duty Atlanta police officers officers that augment what the Atlanta Police Department does in order to provide public safety. We do landscaping. We landscape the medians. So the 14th Street medians, we have a team that does seasonal plantings and maintains those medians year-round. So those are the kinds of things that we do. We work with private development. So as private development comes in and is looking to build in Midtown, we are working with them on how to make a better project and how to fit within the larger community. And those are the kinds of things that we do. For an organization like Midtown Alliance, where does your funding come from? Obviously, there's going to be a membership factor, I'm sure, but uh, any other sources? Yes. So funding comes from a number of different sources. Membership is one of those sources, but it's only one. We also have a community improvement district. A community improvement district is when the commercial businesses elect to tax themselves. Within that district, there's an additional five mills that's collected, and that five mills is reinvested back into the community. We use that five mils to pay for the public safety for that landscaping, but we also use it to leverage federal dollars or even private dollars. So we might have a capital project that's a $6 million project of which 30% of that comes from the Midtown Improvement District resources and the other is a federal or state grant. So it's a mix of resources, depends on what the project is, the program is, but those are some of our main sources of funding, sponsorships at times for events. So that's, that's how we're funded. Just about everybody who's been around Atlanta for a minute or two has heard of Midtown, but what are we talking about when we talk about Midtown Atlanta? Where, uh, where does it encompass? That's a great question because I think that it, it can be answered in a couple of different ways. So the Midtown Alliance is primary focus and the Midtown Improvement District's primary focus is in a corridor that runs down the Peachtree Corridor that's about two blocks on either side. It's about a 1.2 miles. So if you think about where Pine Street on the south end or about where Peachtree runs there's Peachtree Bridge and the interstate mm-hmm. runs under mm-hmm. Peachtree. That's your south south boundary. Um, run all the way up to where the Amtrak station is yep. or Brookwood station mm-hmm. with the other Peachtree Bridge is. <laughs> um, and that's your north boundary. Piedmont Avenue would be your east boundary and the interstate would be your west boundary. That's the Midtown Improvement District. Most of our investment, most of our focus happens within that district. But there's a much broader definition of the larger Midtown area, which picks up the Midtown neighborhood, the single family neighborhood, Mm -hmm. the Ansley Park neighborhood, Home Park on the west side, Georgia Tech, Atlantic Mm -hmm. Station. And we talk about those members of our community in just that way. They're part of our community. They're part of Midtown. But most of our capital investment is happening along the Peachtree Corps. From what I understand, the, the Midtown area has kind of had an interesting history. You want to share a little bit about its background? Or its it's background. It's, it started out as a single-family neighborhood. So it was a streetcar suburb. It took a downturn in the 1960s and 70s where it became an enormous amount of disinvestment, we might say. There were an interesting set of characters throughout, which, which sometimes we look back at the character and, and think, 
positively about, but for the most part, we had massive disinvestment in the 1970s and 1980s and really well into the 90s. When you look at the photos of the peep shows and some of the things <laughs> that were there, it's astonishing, especially when you see it today. Even when I started in the 1990s and we started looking out at mid or board started looking out at Midtown in the mid 90s, just post the Olympics, they'd seen some of the development that had happened or hadn't happened and really asked the question, what is this community going to look like when it grows up? And how do we give some direction and guidance in a way that it grows up in a way that meets its potential? And I came in at that point, 68% of the land was considered ripe for redevelopment, which is another way of saying it was a lot of service parking lots <laughs> under development. And we started a process called Blueprint Midtown, which was a community planning effort, which is, I thought I was coming on for a one-year deal. <laughs> and uh, to help with this planning process, it's been just a, an amazing ride, but that's been the foundation for everything we've done is we went back out into the community and we said, well, what do we need to look like when we grow up? And and we were on the early side of the live, work, play idea when it was, mm -hmm. you know, the only people that were doing live, work, play and urban type living were resorts, it seemed. But I remember looking at, you know, some mainstream magazine like Better Homes and Gardens and seeing them talking about what it was like to live where you could walk to stores and walkability and how important that was. And that was just cutting edge at the time. And today, I think we've seen so much in-town growth. Uh, it's not just midtown, it's everywhere. And it's now commonplace that that's the way we're growing. And that's the best way for us to grow long term. So now midtown's taking the next step and saying, well, that's something that we're accomplishing. Now, what else do we need to do to be really an exceptional place? We've been talking with the chief operating officer of Midtown Alliance, Shannon Powell's joining us in the studio and sharing some of the history of the Midtown region of town. And obviously, it's really thriving now. I mean, I moved to Atlanta in 2002, early 2002, and I lived right on Myrtle between Ponce and North, right. right across the street from what is now the SCAD complex. And I can't get over how much it's changed just on the Peachtree section, the, you know, the SCAD development as well. It really has changed. I saw as we were doing some early tweets about the show, I saw somebody throw a comment out that said they have a new crane going in and they can now see 14 construction cranes from their balcony. I mean, we saw in the, the last development cycle, we saw a lot of development. We were seeing an office building built every 18 or delivered every 18 months. We saw we went from absolute almost no residential housing or high rise residential to to I think we were around 15,000 residents. Today, we have 4,000 residential units under construction. This is in that 1.2 square mile. So I'm not talking about... <laughs> Those are the high-rises. Yeah, these are the high-rises. I'm not talking about the larger Midtown area. I'm talking about this core area. Another 4,000 residential units are in the pipeline and looking to go to construction. And so it's completely changing. So people used to define Midtown as only a business district, and you just can't do that anymore. It's certainly both. The business district is also thriving. We're starting to see that development come back now mm -hmm. after yep. the recession. So there's some big project NCR announced its plans to bring part of its headquarters to Midtown adjacent to Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech announced the High Performance Computing Center, which we expect to see as a development project in the, the near term, which will be, a, from a business perspective, has the potential to be a hugely catalytic project for that area 
on kind of the the east side of the interstate, but they're around Tech Square. That's the thing that I think might have changed more in the last couple of years, other than the residential growth, than anything, is that Tech Square seemed to be a, a silent little giant over there <laughs> yeah. um, at Fifth Street, and now we're starting to see corporate innovation centers announced left and right. Incubators. Uh, incubators. Right. Tech Square Labs has recently opened. Just some really ingenious ways in which the tech community is evolving r- right around Fifth Street. And I think that's going to lead to a whole new set of business opportunities and business development that's going to happen in that corridor. I was really impressed when I met Samir Saini in the studio. and We talked about some of the tech things that the city is doing with fiber optic cable and different things, Wi-Fi around the city. Lots of reasons, it sounds like, uh, when I couple that with, with our conversation here, that there are plenty of reasons why the NCRs and these corporations that have a desire to put a corporate location someplace that it would make sense to be here. Well, and then you start to look at what does Google Fiber mean to the Atlanta community and certainly to, to Midtown, um, that's potentially a really, again, a game changer for how businesses access the Internet and particularly how residents access the Internet. When it comes to the topic like we're talking about, the, these companies that are moving here, and clearly at City Hall, I know that they really work hard to try to entice corporations to come and do business here in the city. Does the Midtown Alliance interface in that process at all? We're trying to outreach to some of those organizations to help them see the light about Midtown Atlanta, or is it really focused more here locally and get acquainted with them once they arrive? Certainly a primary focus for us is to to build out a community where the experience speaks for itself, that if you come, you will, you'll stay. And yet we also put together the kinds of materials that really can help people make a good decision about where they want to be and whether Midtown's the right place for them. So we have a business and real estate report and a resource center on our website that, that gives you pretty much anything. You're, these are where the office buildings are. This is where your opportunities to locate your business, but it also gives you information about retail and both existing retail or pedestrian counts or traffic counts. So a breadth of information that really can help people make a decision about whether Midtown's the right place for them and where they can land and what maybe even what part of Midtown. But we absolutely will work with specific businesses that are hoping to locate Midtown or looking to locate in Midtown. Some of those are developers that are looking to build and some are businesses looking to locate. You know, I didn't realize until getting ready for our conversation that uh, when we talked about the fact when we look at the definition of Midtown, it's primarily that business district, the business corridor, plus or minus on either side of peach tree and then uh, north and south for about a mile or so. It's a business district with high rises and business buildings and office buildings throughout that corridor. You, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a lot of green, but there's several thousand trees and you all spend a fair amount of money and actually pick up quite a bit of <laughs> leaf refuse every year. I, I had no idea that it was that it is that green, really, when we talk about the Midtown well, they, District. Well, they do say Atlanta is a city of trees, and I think that plays out certainly in Midtown. We have a healthy number of street trees, and we plant a lot of those. I mean, that's an important part of what we do is to make sure that we have lights and trees along the edges of our sidewalks. But you're right. Even our public spaces now, some, we also have Piedmont Park and the Botanical Gardens that are on our edges, which helps to to create an awful lot of green. 
off the bat, but it's a defining characteristic for Midtown is mm-hmm. tree-lined streets. It really makes it feel very comfortable. It makes you want to be around those spaces. You know, as I have been around this city and see, obviously, having Piedmont Park right here in town, a very large, lovely green space that they've continued to improve, you begin to realize the, the value and importance as people flock to those and all the events, and it really makes people want to be in that space. It, it does. And the Piedmont Park Conservancy and the city in partnership have done a phenomenal job with Piedmont Park. So what's on the horizon? What are, we, what, are, what are the things that you're really trying to put your focus on right now for the Midtown Alliance coming up? We talked about Blueprint Midtown, which was the planning that we did back in 96. We updated that over the last year. We've been out back in the community saying, okay, a lot of this happened. A lot of this plan got implemented, but how do we really take it to the next level? How do we look for um, what needs to happen in order to take this community from good to great. And so we're pulling in all that information and data, getting a lot of input on things like street activation. So people want to see events on the streets. They want to see the unexpected along the way. So we're looking at art and art installation. So some of those bells and whistles that really help make a community unique Um, So that's part of a focus. We've got some big capital projects. The biggest one is what I'm going to call a bridgescape that is on the north end at the Peachtree Bridge. It will be a gateway bridge, big archways, oversized archways, new sidewalks and lights in that area that will really make a statement both from the interstate and on the surface street. We've got some big streetscapes coming online. We're in design for Juniper Street, which will, again, be a barrier-separated bike lane. This will transition nicely to Bend. This will have, it will be, um, I, I will call it our greenest street yet. We're putting, we're looking at LED lighting. We're looking at bioswales, a way of dealing with stormwater. We've just finished a pilot project on the bioswales. And when we talk about a bioswale, what are you talking about? The bioswales really are a way for us to gather stormwater and process it through the ground so that we keep it out of the drains. So this is above ground, and it looks like it's a tree well without a tree in it with different different grasses and things, and the water kind of flows into it. And so our, our goal is to try to reduce some of the drainage that goes into the, the pipes and naturally naturally filter that. So as we look at Juniper, we're looking at a barrier-separated bike lane, which means that I learned the other day that that didn't necessarily mean something to somebody, but it means that we'll have some sort of way right, in which yeah. we separate the bike lane from the car. A so stripe can easily be ignored. A stripe <laughs> can be easily ignored. So, you know, we're, we're really working to something that won't be a stripe, just a stripe. I think what we've seen across the country is that when you can provide bike facilities that do feel safe for the biker. The number and the percentage of riders goes up exponentially. And that's a learning curve for all of us in Atlanta. We've done a lot of striping where you still don't feel quite safe enough. And barriers, when you look around at the places that have done it right, it's really not about how hot it is. It's really not about what how many hills it is. It's how safe do I feel if I'm on a bike. Mm-hmm. If we look at the number of people out there that are interested in biking, if you provide those facilities, it can be a real mode of transportation and not just recreation. So that's one piece of it. And then, of course, we're looking at, at LED lighting. We're looking at, of course, the sidewalks and creating the pedestrian environment and also kind of these bioswales that are hopefully in stormwater. So across the board, we're taking a look at what we're doing and asking questions about how can we be more green in what we're doing and 
make those necessary steps to take building in town and building density. That's green in and of itself. But can we take it to the next level for what we do? But then can we work with our member businesses to help them do that too? And so, Shannon, whenever I'm a business in the Midtown area, say I'm not a member today of the Midtown Alliance, what does it mean to become a member and why should I get involved in that way? This is a the local interest. So this is about being a part of the community where you're based. If you're a business here, it's about connecting to your neighbors and connecting to your community and, and giving back in some respects. But there are also some direct benefits, some networking opportunities, um, not to mention the fact that you're investing in an organization that that's protecting your investment. You've invested as a business to be in Midtown in all likelihood. And this is someone looking out for your interests day in and day out. So as a general rule, you are a member as a business. So if the business is a member, everybody in your organization is a member of the Midtown Alliance. And we do have also residential members and we also have uh, not other nonprofit members as well. You can always go to MidtownATL.com as our website and you can get pretty much anything about membership and how to get involved and what the events are. We've got some big events coming up. We have an annual meeting in February, which is at the Fox Theater, always bright and early and lots of fun, but it kind of gives you the latest and greatest in what's happening in Midtown and hopefully leaves you somewhat inspired and excited about having made the decision to be there. <laughs> and what about for the residents? Is it Residents are similar to businesses. We have condominium members. The condominium associations are members, and then okay. our apartment buildings are members. And then once the condo is a member, then everybody within that condominium is a member of the Midtown Alliance and gets the values and the benefits of being a part of the community. We have quarterly meetings, they can't be timed exactly, but they're pretty regular where we take on a topic or we just talk about Midtown in general, about what's happening, what they can expect, what's going on outside of their door. And then, of course, we have our big annual meeting and periodically other kinds of events during the year. We have newsletters and websites and lots of information and data that just keeps you posted on what's new and what's happening. I'm pleased to have gotten a chance to sit down with you and talk more about it. Any kind of final thoughts before we jump over and introduce folks to Blue Goblin? Uh, you know, thank you for having us here. We think that you know, Midtown is just, I mean, I look out and think, oh my gosh, it really is growing up and it is it is changing fast and I hope we're all proud of what this community is becoming and how it's growing up so it's a new thing for Atlanta. I marvel when I get around the Midtown area and to the east of there a little bit I just wow this place has changed so much I can't get over just in the last two or three years so and I don't think that's really going to stop I mean when you look at what's Looks the like salary yeah there's just no way I mean it's it's accelerating and things that we thought were were here for a really long time probably aren't and you're going to continue to see that kind of growth and and development a few weeks ago i had an opportunity i was at a meeting got invited to come down and meet some of the folks and when i was standing around there i ran into ben hirakawa and we got to talking about what he did and we were talking about the the fact that the city's trying to be green and that's the space that ben and his company operate in so introduce folks to to blue goblin thank you very much cw um so this is the uh the third startup that I've been involved in. And what Blue Goblin does is we uh, have mobile foam 
compaction and recycling services. When people think of foam, you typically think of the food service cups or plates, and it's frequently associated as one of the more common sources of litter and something that isn't recycled very much. And we're, we're here to say that it's really to the contrary. It is something that is fully reusable, and the, the reason that it hasn't been recycled a whole lot is it's hard to transport. If you were to take a 40-foot trailer and load it full of styrofoam, it would only weigh between 1,000 and 3,000 pounds. And it's going to cost the same amount to move that trailer regardless of whether it's 1,000 pounds or 40,000 pounds. Because they charge by the truckload rather than, or by the trip, I guess. That's right. Or at least there's a minimum haul for a driver to come out there and hook up and pull it anywhere. So what I think has been a barrier to recycling foam in the past is the cost of that. And and also having big enough sources of foam. So in in order to say why I'm doing this now, I think it's important to talk a little bit about my last experience. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because you've been around the space a little bit in some of your previous iterations. So take us through how you got to this point, and then we'll get into why you ended up launching this and why you chose Blue Goblin as the name. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) The last business that I was involved in getting started up is called Reclaim. They're out in South Carolina, and what they are is an appliance recycling facility. It was a $40 million startup, and basically, like many other recyclers, they go and and they shred appliances, whether that is washers and dryers, whether it's refrigerators, air conditioners, dishwashers, all types of appliances. And like everybody else, they go in and they recover the metals and the plastics, and they're able to reuse those. What differentiates them, and what I think is a a very neat thing about what they are doing, is they have integrated an air purification system. So in a cooling device that has a coolant or insulation, they're able to separate and capture the liquid coolant and capture the blowing agent that's stuck in the closed pockets that are in the insulation of a refrigerator and destroy those on site. And both those coolants and blowing agents have a very negative effect on the environment. Prior to 1993, CFC 11 and 12 were very common, and those have high ozone depleting potential and global warming effects. So by treating one refrigerator using their process, it's the equivalent of taking two cars off the road for a year. And that seems pretty significant to me. (laughs) So what I did is looked at other sources of foam that might also have these gases. And if you look at a refrigerated transport, like the truck that that moves food to a grocery store, whereas a refrigerator is going to have 20 pounds of foam in it, a refrigerated transport is going to have 700. So if doing one refrigerator is the same as taking two cars off, then it makes sense that a trailer would be significantly more. And in in addition to refrigerated transport, it's very commonly used as insulation on buildings. If you're driving down the road and you see a building that is covered in blue board or pink board or green board, or the yellow material that's commonly used as uh, insulation. Before they put the outside on, you mean? Yeah, that's Uh right. So, And the yellow materials under flat roofing, those are all foam that have the blowing agent in it. So there are companies that are out there recycling roofing foam, and they're able to exist in profit just on that one service <laughs> w- with, without capturing the gases. But what they do is they just ask the roofing company or the demolition company to take these pieces of foam, put them on a pallet, put it on a truck, and transport it. We're going to go to a demolition site, and the biggest ones that we've seen had 600,000 pounds of foam just on roofing, and that was a Boeing plant. Again, if they get 3,000 pounds or 1,000 pounds on a 40-foot trailer. That adds up to be quite a bit of cost. But in addition to reducing the disposal cost, we're going to recycle that material and capture the blowing agent that is being released as we compact the material and try and destroy it. So I think that it is 
a good thing to do economically, but also environmentally. We're hoping to be able to help the clients generate lead credits for properly disposing or recycling this material. In addition to building insulation and refrigerated transport insulation, there's also what everybody's familiar with is packaging material. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's every a, Christmas. Yeah, every Christmas. <laughs> and anytime you get electronics or appliances, furniture, they all generate a lot of packaging material. So again, we'll bring the trailer to them and compact it on site, save them a significant amount over what their normal disposal costs are and help do something green at the same time. And so you had been a part of that organization that you mentioned in South Carolina. You thought there's got to be some outside of appliance reclamation. There's got to be some other sources out there. Started looking around, saw, as you mentioned, particularly in the building materials and in vehicles, in trucks, different things. You saw all these places where recycling companies were really focused on the metal and just shipping off this foam. And you decided that you would create a device that would basically become mobile and allow you to go to that construction site where they're tearing down or or demolishing a building. And you can actually go in and squish all that stuff down, take the gases that come out of it when you squish it, Mm -hmm. compact it down, And now they can, when they pay that truck to haul it off, now they're hauling off thousands of pounds. 40,000 pounds. As opposed to one or 3,000 pounds. So obviously, for the same cost to ship it, the weight itself, does that make their cost go up? Or it probably doesn't do so on a a way that would be comparing it to taking 3,000 pounds and then coming back on another truck and taking another 3,000 pounds. When you were talking 600,000 pounds of that stuff on one job, that was pretty amazing. Right. Once you get to a certain threshold, a a certain weight, it's the same cost regardless of whether you have 3,000 or 40,000. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just shipping one pallet, then it might be a different cost structure. But right. So I would imagine that you're kind of a welcome site when you when you walk up and start talking to the demolition companies to tell them how you can help them out. Now, when you went to start your company, talk about the name. I'm curious about where Blue Goblin came from. What's the significance of that? You know, I, I wish there was a better story behind it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it allowed us to be versatile on what we as a company could do. And I think that that's important. This is my third company that I've been involved in as a startup. And I think the most important thing is to go in and listen to what the customer needs. And I wanted the ability to pivot while the focus of the company is foam. There are other things that we offer. The Blue Goblin, it's a mythical creature, obviously, typically thought as menacing, but ours is going to be a, we're doing something green. So putting a twist on something that generally has a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. So you're able to now show up to these projects and save them a ton of money to to ship it off. But you also said that most of those materials that you're reclaiming or that you are compacting with your device are able to be reused. Like we talked about the the white styrofoam that everybody sees with the television or whatever, they, mm-hmm. their electronics, that that's very readily reused. Yes. So in the foams, when you think of foams, there are basically two categories. One is called a thermoplastic. And what that means is that if you apply heat to it, it's going to soften again. So essentially it has an infinite life of being remoldable. There's no reason that after the fifth time, it's going to be different than the first or the tenth time. So those, whereas a lot of people think of styrofoam or expanded polystyrene as being non-recyclable, it's very Very much so. That's interesting, yeah. Now, there's another category that does not react to seeing heat again, and that's called a thermoset. So with that category, it has less value to me. Where do you see that? 
So polyurethane is a thermoset, and that is the yellow material that you see underneath a roof. Like that, it gets hard, and they blow it in or yeah. pipe it in. So, so spray it swells uh, up. Spray blown foam that you'd see in a housing insulation. That's a thermoset. What you see in the refrigerator is a thermoset. There are other applications too. What most people that are trying to deal with polyurethane do is a waste energy, and that makes sense. It's got a, a very high BTU rating. Or you're saying uh, it burns with a high heat? Yes, very high. You, I see. you need to get it to a certain temperature in order for it to not have a negative effect. The other thing that we're doing is we're trying to establish ways to increase its value. And so we've identified some companies that are able to do a chemical process on it that returns it to what's called pyrrole. And pyrrole is a raw material to making new foam. If we are successful in doing that, it should increase the value of trash. One of the things we were talking before we went on the air, and I was asking about the process, because when I've gone by many demolition projects, they just kind of roll in with either uh, one of those big scoop loaders or, or a front-end loader or, or a ball and smash it into a big pile, and then they just kind of scoop it up and haul it off. You're able to go in, ideally, before they start doing that, and remove much of those types of foams and ceiling tiles and things like that before they smash it to bits. Yeah, so we are working on understanding how these industries work and, and how to maximize the value that we can offer to the relationships that we have. It makes sense to me, and I think it has to a number of people that we've been talking to, to go in and do a pre-demolition to prepare the site. And if there's foam underneath the rubber membrane, we'll take off that rubber membrane and put it in one pile, take the foam off their hands, and possibly recycle both. The other thing that we're doing is foam is our focus. But we've recognize that whenever there is foam, there's commonly something else that is recyclable, that is a disposal problem. So it doesn't necessarily make sense, for example, in retail and packaging. Anywhere that there's packaging foam, there's frequently cardboard. Right. Everybody knows cardboard is recycled. But if the volume of cardboard, it has a low value. And it doesn't make sense for a cardboard recycling company to go to every appliance retailer. But if I'm already there because of the foam and I have a baler on the same piece of equipment, I can take their foam, I can take their cardboard. While each individually may not justify the trip, the combination of the two makes it easier to justify. So we do cardboard, we do foam, obviously. We're able to do acoustic ceiling tiles. We're able to do PVC-backed carpet tiles. We're looking into how to deal with EPDM rubber membrane that comes off of flat commercial roofs. Mm -hmm. And really, we're trying to enter this with an open attitude of what is reusable and what is valuable to the customer. Even if we're just compacting things on site, rather than them paying a lot to the waste company, it's typically based on volume, not on weight. We've been talking with the founder of Blue Goblin. They do recycling, particularly on a variety of foams that we see in construction and a, and a host of applications from appliances to packing electronics, insulating trucks, for example, refrigerated trucks and vehicles. And they're able to, as Ben has been describing, one, they're able to compact that down so that the demolition company can ship it at a much more economical cost. Or in some cases, it sounds like you actually can reclaim that for them and then go to a company that would use those reclaimed materials and recycle them. How does that flow for you in terms of what's going to happen with the foams when you come and you, you've got your equipment there in terms of what happens to it once you've done your work? and you've compressed it, you've eliminated the gases that are contained in there as to what happens, whether they ship it off to someplace or whether you 
drive away with it? It depends on the source and the quantity. Basically, our process produces a square log, Mm -hmm. six inches by six inches by whatever we cut it to, and we can aggregate it on the piece of equipment or on the bed of the truck that's carrying it. If a major roof or building, then we'll, we'll have a chase truck so that we can load directly onto that and ship directly to the customer. Another major source that I probably should bring up of this foam is something called EFIS. If you go to a shopping plaza and you knock on the stucco, it sounds hollow. That's because really what it is is about an eighth inch piece of stucco-like material, mm-hmm. a big piece of expanded polystyrene like the styrofoam. So if, anytime that you see a reface or a renovation of, of a shopping plaza or apartment complexes or many other places, that's recyclable foam. And so you'll be able to go in and be a part of that. Who's your customer? I mean, obviously demolition companies, but who are you calling on to say, hey, we can help you? I think it's one of the things that's attractive to this business is a large number of possibilities. Demo companies, roofing companies, a lot of schools or universities, a lot of building owners, hotel chains, retailers are a big source. For Blue Goblin, you mentioned that you're having some equipment made. Are you guys up and running now? Or are you in that phase where you're getting ready to start kicking off? Where do you stand in the business of evolution? We are finishing our first pieces of equipment. We expect to have bailing capability by the end of the month and, and the foam capability by the end of November. We're also working on protecting some of the intellectual property and we're out looking to line up customers. For folks who are looking for information about Blue Goblin, I, I was looking at the website. It sounds like there's some other directions you're looking to go. We talked about on, on the website, I think it mentioned mattresses and other things that are bad for the landfill, very difficult to take care of, but there may be some options that you could do some sort of reclamation and maybe even recycling on items like that you would never even imagine. What we've talked about most is rigid foams that are typically contain these gases I'm talking about. There's a whole nother classification of flexible foams. And that's what you will find in your mattresses and your car seats and airplane seats. Anything that has a porosity that is flexible is likely to be an open cell foam that's already released the majority of its gases. There are companies that are able to just recycle mattresses now. They're able to tear them (laughs) apart in three to four minutes, go after the fabric that's on the exterior, go after the foam that, that can be reused in this chemical process. I mentioned easier to to make pyrrole. There's a lot of metal in there, wood. Typically, that industry is subsidized. The customer pays a a certain amount in disposal fees. This is something that that we're looking at. If it's well with some of our equipment, it's not necessarily the first thing that we're going to try and address. I got you. Well, it's really cool. I had no idea until I started doing the show some of the things I've gotten to learn. And it's really exciting to be able to introduce people to technologies like this that might inspire them to take advantage of it. If you want more information about Blue Goblin, you can go to their website and that's blue-goblin.com. Be able to get some information about whether or not either your demolition project might be able to benefit from their technologies because it's going to be obviously available here in the community very soon and get in touch with them and find out if they can't help you out. It's pretty cool the, the technology that you're bringing out. So I really appreciate you taking some time to come and share about it. Thank you very much for having me. Shannon, I want to say thanks so much for you as well to introduce folks to the Midtown Alliance and all the things that you're doing for what is one of the more important areas, I think, of the city. And I don't think that folks necessarily realize all the different work that you're doing. Well, thanks for having us. Remind folks of the website they can go to to uh, get information about you. MidtownATL.com is the website. And I know you're at Twitter at MidtownATL. That's right. We're at Twitter at MidtownATL. We have a Facebook site. 
Again, Midtown ATL. We're already tied in with you on uh, social media, so folks can find out all the cool things you got, all the events that you talked about. Those are out there, I know, and plenty of information to be found about what they're doing with the Midtown Alliance. And if you're checking out the podcast, if you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand side of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there, and that'll take you over to the iTunes store. You can subscribe to the Midtown Business Radio podcast and get the weekly episode downloaded straight to your device for you for the ride to work or walk in the dog whatever the case may be. And we're also streamed on iHeartRadio as well. So it's real exciting that we got picked up by them not too long ago. So you'll be able to find us out there on the Midtown Business Radio Show on iHeartRadio as well. Shannon and Ben, I really want to say thanks so much for taking some time to come by the studio today. And uh, I know you're all real busy. I'll get you back to your afternoon. And to the folks who made us a part of your day out there, we really want to say thanks so much. We appreciate it. Turn around and share it with your networks. You never know who might be able to benefit from this information. So uh, make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 